as you know, we've been going through a short set of chapters in Romans, the ones that ought not create any disagreement among the saints. There are chapters in Romans where you find yourself at odds with one another. We're not going there. And although in some of these chapters, like our chapter today, we're in Romans 7, do create differences of opinion between Christians, I don't see in some ways how it's possible. I always look at it and go, how is this possible? That but you have to be gracious to other saints who hold different views. It says in Romans that you welcome the weaker brother, but not for disputes over opinions. But the strength of Romans 5 through 8 is what it means to your walk. Not what it means to your theological camp, but what it means to your walk. How you live um, as a Christian before Christ. What is your ethical inertia in all of this? So let's ask God's blessing. Dear Lord, we are thankful for the wisdom that Paul had. We're grateful that he wrote it down and that we sit here many years later desiring to come closer to you and your son, finding his wisdom to be of great benefit. We'd ask that we'd see that benefit this morning in your son's name. Amen. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we were in Romans 5, two weeks ago, Romans 6, last week. And in Romans 6, we were faced with a bunch of things, the addition of death as an integral part of your sense of the gospel. We as Protestants, because you know you, you go to war with the Roman Catholic Church and, and Martin Luther and others drawing a line on the issue of faith. And great piece of information, great piece of help and realizing things about what religion had become and what the scriptures taught. And so we, pounding the drum of faith alone, wandered through Northern Europe, uh, developing kingdoms. Paul is thankfully not post-Catholic. He is post-pagan, or he is post-Jewish, but he's not post-Catholic. He's not setting up the arguments in Romans to deal with the questions that existed in 1500. He's answering things that are true in about 50 A.D. So you have to remember that, that you're not answering questions that our own theological history has suggested to us. They may come up, they might not. You want to interpret the text. This is one, I'm, this is, hey, when are you going to get to the Bible, Evan? Well, this, this is a warning about chapter 7. Some of you are going to be attempted to stop your ears and rush upon me. Breathing threats and murder. Those are Bible references. Um, some, of your, some of you might find your hearts strangely moved. Because it's not what the Christian church lives like today. As you probably have picked up over the weeks or years, 
our, in, our inclination, if you were to say anything about it as a ministry, is the holiness of the believer. God has died in Christ to bring us to holiness, reconcile us to him. We are not wretches, we are saved sinners, and we are made to be righteous. But Romans 7 comes up in regard to that. So let's dig into it. But I want you to remember, in Romans 6, all the things that have been said to you, what are they? We have died to sin, verse 2. Verse 11, so you must also consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 6, we know that the old self was crucified with him so that the sinful body might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. Verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. And then the last verse in the chapter, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, remember those. If you forget them, keep your Bible open. You have Bibles. Did you not bring your Bible? Well, you always hand us the passage out of the sheet. You might want to bring your Bibles occasionally. You can then check on the pastor, make sure he's not doing something wrong. But it'd be good to have Romans 6 open to you as you read Romans 7 because there is a powerful contextual demand on you. One is St. Paul's context. The other is the context of your life and or Christians you know. Different context. One is what Paul is writing and one is what the modern evangelical is living. Pick your context wisely. Romans 7, 1. Do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only during his life. Now, Paul didn't know back at the last verse of chapter 6 that he was writing the, the great quotable of the Christian faith, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. He didn't know he was writing the refrigerator magnet of refrigerator magnets. It was just the next line in what he was saying. And he didn't know there was a chapter marking right after that. He was just writing this next sentence. He's trying to illustrate this concept of death. We were talking about death and glory last week. And here in this chapter, we get more death. And you've got to keep your death straight. There is a bit of confusion about death in this chapter. You've got to know what death is and how to keep it straight when Paul's talking about the various deaths. He gives an illustration to help people understand the circumstance. The law is binding on a person only during his life. You can't require someone who's dead to obey the law. Thus a married woman is bound by law to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is discharged from the law concerning the husband. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Okay? Simple illustration. That which was required with these two people, one of them dead, 
that law no longer has a bearing. Your husband dies, you, you, you are not, you're not supposed to light candles at his grave for the rest of your life. You can go out, get married again, without being morally suspect. But this is just an illustration. This is not something that is being given to us so that we might think about our standards of marriage and adultery and remarriage, you know. That's a separate subject. It's to illustrate what death does. Do you not know, brother, that death, death has this effect on your obligations? Verse 4. Likewise, in the same fashion, just like with the illustration, just with the analogy, death intervenes. Likewise, my brethren, you have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another. Let's apply the analogy as far as it will go. Now, interestingly enough, you're the dead agent. <coughs> you're the husband that died. Which makes us try to understand, well, if I over-apply it, it's not, not that I die and I no longer have any sentience or life or whatever. When we talk about spiritual death and spiritual life, we're not talking about the person actually going away. Death really is separation from a state of what was life. Whatever the life was, if you are, when somebody in the mafia says, you are dead to be Fredo. Isn't that the, which one was that? Two? Godfather too? Fredo, you are dead to me. Fredo didn't feel real good about that. Now what does that mean? The life you had together is severed. When you die physically, what you claimed, your house, your yard, your hobbies, they're now just memories of people about you. Your body lies moldering in the ground. You are more, no more cl you're clearly severed from what was the life. It says to us in verse 4 that we have died like, like a marriage where a life that existed went through an experience that severed that relationship went through a, an experience that severed that relationship and that severing freed up the woman to remarry. You have gone through an experience in which you have died to the law. Your husband was the law. And you died through the body of Christ, Christ's death, what it says in chapter 6. This is all in Christ. We have died with Christ. It's Christ's death that becomes this death for us, but it is severing me from the law. And the reason is so that I can marry someone else. That's the illustration. Your Christianity thought of in these terms. Now Paul's offering these, he gave the illustration of slavery in chapter 6. Here he's giving the illustration of marriage or how the death in a marriage affects us. 
so that you may belong to another. Who? To him who has been raised from the dead. Well, that's kind of sweet. I was talking recently to some women who were looking at some passage in Isaiah where God's talking about being Israel's husband, and they were wondering about, you know, women who have been through tragedies, widows, or whatever, uh, depending on God as their husband. Within reason, yeah, fine, but don't stop there. It's not so that you can have the perfect boyfriend in Jesus. It's not so that we will have this moment. You didn't have a great marriage with the law before. Okay? It wasn't working out for you. It was always a crisis. But we're not trying to create a romance of Christianity. The in order, the next thing in red, that I was belonging to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that I might bear fruit for God. So the topic is, this death happened. I died to the law in Christ so that I could marry another, and that another is to provide for me a life bearing fruit. I mean, we're not just theologians. Well, I'm not a theologian at all, you might say. Okay, you're on a good start. All this complexity, you've ever read Romans before? And you go, I don't understand what's going on. You start to parse the sentences and you get in discussions with your friends and and St. Paul is writing these non-ending sentences filled with the whole counsel of God. And you have to think about it. And Lord knows you don't want to think about your Christianity. But Paul just sort of makes you think about it. And then you have the idea of what am I committing myself to? I'm, I'm, I'm confused enough even to attend church. God bless you. The point of it all is not merely to create a confusion, a complexity, a body of knowledge for you to know, a loyalty to a set of people. It is to bear fruit for God in order that we may bear fruit for God. That's why God has died for us. That we could have our first husband die. So we could be good. It is not, Christianity is not this remedy, just a remedy, a a place that bad people can go to have their owie kissed and have a band-aid put on. The grace of God, and this is the problem with people who think of faith alone by grace alone, they're thinking of the deficit they have, the ungodliness they have, and how God answers it, which is true. But if your theology of the gospel does not include include the death you went through in Christ, you won't even get around to asking yourself, what am I, what's all that for? What's the, I thought, isn't, isn't faith and grace enough? What, what's the dying for? The dying is so that you would no longer be enslaved to the law, you no longer dead in your sins, and you could be alive to God. Remember back in chapter 6, it said, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
You must realize that he got, died to give you newness of life. If newness of life is not part of the mix, you can get really messed up. So that we may bear fruit. While we were living in the flesh, verse 5, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. This is what the old marriage looked like. This is the home life of the old marriage. Now, as we describe it, that's what it kind of looks like my spiritual marriage. Well, you might want to become a Christian. Because the Christian has moved from marriage number one to marriage number two. The one that is number two, you died to your first husband in the law, bondage to the law. You've been married to Christ for newness of life. The old circumstance, bearing fruit for God, was replaced by bearing fruit for death. You see how he has made that parallelism. I died to the law that I might be married to God so that I might bear fruit for life, fruit for God. But before, my sinful passions, aroused by the law, were bearing fruit for death. Now let me warn you about something. Christianity is filled with law. It ought not be. It is one of the most clear, damned, uh, argued against, taught against in the New Testament ways of going about the moral life. And Christians still go look at the law and go find the law and insist on the law. Secondarily, they decide to live their lives because they're postmodern by their passions, by their urge. And they think because they love Jesus enough, their urge will always take them to the right place. But you know what? You have this sack of urges that you carry around with you. Your passions and your combination with what you think is holiness is the law bears fruit for death. It doesn't work. It just makes really, really bad churches. But now we are discharged from the law. Now, for those of you who may be still law-oriented, you're going to have to deal with this. This is what it says. The whole point is the law you're deceived by it. We'll get to that question a little bit later. You're deceived by the goodness of the law. Paul recognizes you will be deceived by the goodness of the law. And he doesn't deny that the law is good in this chapter. But it is not the way. Because the law, combined with your passions, was your husband. It equaled sin, which equaled death. A different death. We've got two deaths here. We've got the death we die to get out of that relationship and the death that came on to us that took us out of a preceding life. When you were born, now you might not agree with this, but I think this passage agrees with this. Um, you were blank. You weren't bad. You weren't good. You weren't dead. 
spiritually. And when sin came, you died. Now I'm just virtually rewording the passage here. That took you away, that separated you from the life you had when you were born. That's why it's death. And now you're in a marital state, if you want to say the analogy, or use the analogy, you're in a marital state of death with your husband, sin-law, and you have got to die to it in order to live to God and bear fruit for God, marry another. So you've got a couple of deaths to deal with. But now, we are discharged from the law, dead to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. Does it get any clearer than that? The way I went about it before, passion, my urge, matched with the good standard of God, law, was a travesty was a train wreck. That was a captivity. That was a bad marriage. Thank God he died. Or you died. You got to be the zombie, I guess. You die, and then you get to get married again. It's kind of creepy, but you know, it's, it's the way it's, the analogy works. He wants you to die. What shall we say then? And those of you who like the law are going to be saying the same question. Are you saying, Wilson, that the law is sin? You're making it sound bad. Making this sin law your previous husband of death that had to die for you to live victoriously in Christ. Well, that's what it says. But you might say, oh, defending against it, and I do want to apply the Ten Commandments to my children. Uh, Don't do that. The law didn't work. The law was good, and he says here, what, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I should not have known sin. That, sin is inexorably or logically tied to law. There is no, what does it say in Romans, the same book? I think it's chapter 5. Verse 13. But sin is not counted where there is no law. There's no transgression if you don't have a line drawn. If there are no lines drawn, there are no broken rules. You have to have a law to sin. They're inexorably tied, the good and the bad side, the bad face, the good face, the, the, the dark and light side of the forest, right? Isn't there the light and dark side? Was it right and wrong side? I don't know what the forest did. It's not true, it's fiction, but maybe it's a good image. Same force, law representing good, sin being the ugly stepchild. If it had not been for the law, I should not have known sin. I should not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. 
But sin, finding opportunity in the commandment, wrought in me all kinds of covetousness. You've seen it. Oh, who was over our house the other day? Oh, it was an old house resident who came in town, Brian and Bethany uh, Martin. Little son, I don't know, pretty young. What was his name? Felix. There were candy canes on the coffee table. Father had said, no, don't play with the candy canes. He's looking at his dad. Grabs the candy cane. Put the candy cane back. Slowly. And then he just bolts for the door. You know, just runs with the candy cane. Like, I will escape him. There is a place I can run to in this strange house where me and the candy cane could be together forever. <laughs> it's amazing. Sometimes, if you raise children at all, I mean, you even remember being a child, where as soon as they said no, you looked at it with renewed respect and importance. That electrical outlet really must need both of my fingers pressed into it because my father said, well, he would only say. We always have the feeling, like Ambrose Beer says about, I think, Presbyterians, the person who suspects that somewhere someone is having a good time. And that's how law comes across to us. Okay, God always wants us to stop from having a good time. Why, is, why do we suspect that? Because my passions are what are forbidden. A line is drawn across my sexual urge, across my hunger urge, across my pride urge, across all sorts of urges, the things I want, the law descends halfway down that path and says, no more of that or you're a glutton. No more of that or you're a fornicator. No more of that. And so you're looking at the outlet saying, anytime a law comes, I want to cross that line. Now what's not seen in this is why. So it's good to know why this last marriage you were in was so dysfunctional. Why did you and the law, you knew the law was good, right? Everybody knows the law is good. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. It's dead, not you dead, it's dead. It has no life without the law. Why is it you have this war in yourself when the whether the whether it's the law of the Jews or your own conscience, okay? Law is anything from the knowledge of good and evil that we inherited from Adam all the way down to the Mosaic Code or a particular church you attend has certain rules. Or the rules you hear from Christians and very, you can't do that and you can't do that. <coughs> Law takes a lot of forms. <coughs> the reason it becomes a crippling problem is because it meets with you and your passion. We just discussed that. The real problem there is not the passion, nor is it the law of God, which is good. Your conscience tells you a good thing. Oh, don't take that stuff. It doesn't belong to you. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's good. The problem is, your passions are your passions. They're yours. And guess what? You worship you. As a non-Christian, 
What you're at get up in the morning to do is run a life that features Evan's best interests. At every respect, Evan's greatest interest will be served because I got up in the morning not believing in God. Not believing in anyone else being in charge of this because I feel these things. My passions, my pleasures, I want them. My pains, I want them removed. The problem is, this is why faith comes home to us as a crucial moment here at our salvation. Because, like we've said to you in the last few months, faith is about who is your Lord. I have faith in me when I'm a non-Christian. I have a faith in what I want. I have a faith that I can design a life that will make me happy. And the question is, is it misplaced? Does it just create death? I have given my will, has stood there as a comrade to my passions. My mind, what I developed, I developed a mind that, that agreed. I didn't ask for my passions. I, the interesting word about passions um, are the nature of passions. When it says, verse, verse 5, our sinful passions. The word, you know how they call it the passion of the Christ? Mel Gibson's movie. Why is it called the passion of the Christ? Is he in love with it? No, because the word here means suffering. The word passion. But not necessarily held to, you know, a punch in the nose and you suffer, or a bee sting and you suffer. But it is something you endure. That's what a suffering is. And your passions, you did not ask for them. Guess what? Remember puberty? Good times, huh? Everybody looks back with a certain degree, oh heavens, never again. I will shoot myself. If I, if I was to be made 14 again and you handed me a gun, I mean suicide's bad, but you know, you remember puberty, don't you? Remember your arms overshooting everything? Reaching for a glass, it grew like three inches overnight and and girls were so just, oh my gosh, women. And, you know, I've raised a daughter too, so I didn't experience female puberty, but I saw it. <laughs> I saw it and I was, my soul was almost damned by the experience. A woman going through puberty. Passions, they descend on us, you endure them. You, they drive your life. You didn't ask for the lust of the flesh. You didn't ask for the lust of the eyes. You didn't ask for the pride of life. You got issued it. It's just how you're built. You're a sack of urge. Your mind you built. Your faith you decide. But we have two things that are given to us in life. We know the good. Thank you, Adam. We know the law because of Adam and Moses. And we have our passions. We endure them. And now the question really is what the faith and the mind are that drive it. I have to recognize that if I, my faith and my mind are in that system, law and passion, I will have a life of death. I will have a bad marriage going on between the essential Evan 
the ego of evidence, whatever that will is, that self, and this construct of law and sin that seem to be the only thing I have left as inertial power in my life. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. Now this is where I say, verse 9, this is where I say, I say, you say, Evan, you sounded like you don't believe in original sin. I do not. The Bible doesn't teach it. I don't believe in it. And this passage is one of the reasons. In red, I was once alive apart from the law. In terms of spiritual death, Paul was never alive in a way that he wasn't going to die a mortal death. Your mortal deaths were always there, but he was once alive apart from the law. And he tells you what happens. You come into this world, he gives you the sack of, you endure the sack of, of passions, and without the law, it would just be you following your passions. What's wrong with that? Well, the only wrong happens when the law comes, right? And he hadn't been, he was in a state of innocence, however long it lasted. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. I wouldn't make too much of that word revived. The word just means came to life. You can tell the person who does the translating believes in original sin because he has it be as a state of actuality in the person and it comes back to life revived means that it was kind of just dormant. No, he was, <coughs> it was dead. Without the law, sin lies dead. Law comes, the person alive gets killed. Sin revived and I died. That's where spiritual death comes from. The state of death that Jesus Christ saves you from happened in your life. It didn't happen in Adam's life. It happened in your life. You looked at that rule. You looked at the electrical outlet. Mom and Dad said, don't, don't touch that. And you had a belief that all answers of good and pleasure were in that little three-pronged hole. If only I could work my tongue into it. I, always, I, I kind of wish they'd come up with <clears throat> outlets they would install in homes, right at kid level. They were running something, you know, maybe nine volts, something, something low, but enough. <laughs> because I have, my general policy of changing an outlet is do not turn the power off. That's my policy. I'm a man. I'm an American. I don't need to turn the dang power off. Now, I have a collection of screwdrivers that look like they were arc welded along with some big jagged notches taken out of them. I have taken 110 across the heart I don't know how many times. It's a treat. But it, it does get your attention. And I think that having an outlet that just did that, the kid outlet, brightly colored down by the floor, <laughs> the word no above it. And then you'd say, no, don't touch. Then you turn away slowly. <laughs> because you know, I mean, they'll look at you. They're wondering when the law, the punitive aspects of the law are going to come down on them. You've got to let that open up. Let it be. Let them find out the death that kills them. The very commandment which promised life proved to be death to me. 
That's how we die. Passion and law and making up your mind to serve yourself. Who else are you going to serve, right? You're about you. That's the awful thing about good. It isn't your idea. Good is not your idea. You have it. You know it is there, but, and you know it is good, but you know it comes from the outside. It wasn't your plan for how the light world should work. It was somebody else's. Your passions were just given to you, so you don't, can't resist those either, but at least they show up with a thing called feeling. You feel your passions. You enjoy them. At least that. The good, it just is a line. For sin, finding opportunity in the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. You were taken from that life of innocence as a beginning human being, and by the presence of law and the presence of passions were killed, to mix your metaphors, you were killed into a marriage with sin and law. A marriage of death, to which you had to die. To be set free from that, you have to die. To marry another in whom sin is not the principle. Not forgiven sin, sin is not the principle. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and just and good. This doctrine that the law causes sin is not a doctrine that says the law represents evil. It just causes it. Find out where the real problem is. Find out where, and don't think because the law is good. You're reading the Old Testament and you go, wow, that's just great. Let's make all the Christians obey it. Missed the point? Much? Yeah. It's good. It isn't the way. The way... is to die to that. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. He doesn't even want to hold the law accountable for the death. It was your sin. It was sin working death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Joe, Joe Hottentot walking down the streets of wherever Hottentots live has never heard of the law of the Jews and the Christians and he's walking there with a conscience given him by God through Adam. He knows it's wrong to murder his neighbor. But through the commandment, sin becomes sin beyond measure. You see the explicit rendering out of the law of the Jews and begin to see how much God says is wrong. That's why it was there. But it's this perverse relationship it has with your passions. We know that the law is spiritual. Now, at this point, you might disagree with me. You may not, but you might. Because in this passage, you have this presence of present tense. This is where I want you to realize what you have been told in chapter 5 and chapter 6. 
We're not trying to find out if this portion of Romans 7 matches your life. God help you if it does. That's not the context of Romans 7. It's not your life. It's not the life of all the rest of evangelical Christianity. You don't look at the state of the church and go, what a bunch of sinners. Ah, Romans 7, it kind of describes what they're about. That's not the context. The context is Romans 5 and Romans 6 and Romans 8, which we will get to next week. You cannot have this be Paul as a Christian in the present tense if Romans 5 and 6 are true. And Romans 8. And even in Romans 7, he has just laid out his coming into a realization of that marriage he had with sin and death through the law, through being born innocent and then falling to the law and to sin, and then stating in verse 11 that it killed him, that had worked, verse 13, death in him. He's not talking about the Christian death. The Christian death to life. Ours is death and glory. Theirs is death and death. This is the first death. This is the death that the law caused him to die in by the sin that it brought up in his, in his life. Sin working in him. Sinful beyond measure. And then what he says in verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual. The conclusion is the law is good and just and holy. But I am carnal, sold under sin. Now that phrase alone should have set off little alarm bells in your mind saying, hold it. He's just been arguing for two chapters that we're not. One, carnal. Two, sold under sin. Matter of fact, he forbade you to think that in chapter 6. You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. You must. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? You can't wander through any few verses in Romans 6 without being told, in no uncertain terms, that is an illegitimate description, the sinful life of the believer, for a believer. So if I want to say, because it matches my current moral fiber, oh, yeah, I know the law is spiritual, but I'm carnal. I'm one of those carnal Christians. I don't have Jesus as Lord in my life. That's it, sitting on the throne. They have all sorts of ways of describing this. Paul describes it this way. This is a non-Christian. If you say, you say, how about the present tense? I am not a Greek scholar. A friend of mine who is, uh, some of you remember uh, Marnie Lemel, to Marnie Menkes, PhD in classics from John Hopkins, and she wrote a paper read years ago about the historic present, about this passage. The historic present in Greek is the use of the present tense for stress, only determinable by the context. Okay? The context has just walked you through what it is to die in your sins, and then he talks about it in the present tense to illustrate it, but it can only illustrate an unbeliever. Only. If you think this can illustrate a believer, you don't know what belief in Jesus Christ is. You don't know what the gospel is. 
I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. It's going back to that position about this sin and law relationship is, does not make the law bad. Matter of fact, when I feel awful about doing it, I'm agreeing with the law's position that it represents goodness. I just can't do it. Then it is no longer I that do it, but sin which dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. I want you to think back to Romans 6. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not yield your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but yield yourselves to God as men who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall have no dominion over you since you are not under law, you're under grace. Now have that ricocheting inside of your cranium you are told you may not sin. You are told you're able to not sin. It has no dominion over you. And here you're trying to tell me this is a Christian. For I can do nothing. I know that nothing good dwells in me. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. You have to stop and say, well, what? how is Paul speaking so vividly about this? Remember before he was a Christian? As for the law, blameless. I think that was the passage read this morning by Gunn. He was a Pharisee. Loved the law. Loved the law of God. He needed the Lord because he was a sinner. He knew he was a sinner. He may have kept the overt and overt signs of the law, but he knew he was evil. I do not do the good I want, but the evil... I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin which dwells within me. So I find, verse 21, it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self. Now, this is where the path to conversion begins. Because the law creates this circumstance, whatever degree, the increase of the law, the reverence for the law, the desire to please God, becomes a problem for the man. He wants to seek God, but he can't be reconciled to God because of his sins. I delight in the law of God, in my inmost self. What brings us to our knees before God in repentance is we know we're wrong. We know we can't be good. We know we need forgiveness for all the evil we have done. But I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind. He says, my mind has this great opinion of the law but there's another law at work in me, making me captive to the law of sin which dwells in my members. And again, if you think that's a Christian, you don't understand the gospel. Because in Christ, we died to that. We were set free. And you don't have to read more than a page away from that line. Do not make the context of your life 
the interpretive context of this passage. Make what Paul was talking about and what Paul said the context of this passage. You say, but I can't ignore the context of my life. Well, yes, that's why he's preaching this. That's why he's telling you, do not yield yourselves as instruments of wickedness because you must consider yourself dead to sin. If you had the view that this was a Christian, Paul and this Christian, my Bible, this is my Bible, it's an RSV, which means real spiritual version. I like it, I like the RSV a lot, but the notes, it divides it up into paragraphs, single column, nice, very handy, but right at the top of this section, the Christian struggle. Just told me what to expect coming down here. Not, not ignore what came before. Tell me what to expect here, matching most Christians' lives because they said, and they look at it like this, it looks just like me. I want to do what's right, and I can't do it. A lot of it is because they still serve their passions, they still serve themselves, they don't bow the knee to Jesus Christ, they did not die. Sometimes it's because they're not believers at all, but they hold to Christian theology. Christian conversion is you bowing the knee, you call on the name of the Lord, you gave yourself up that mind and faith you had before you were saved, which said, Evan Wilson's in charge of all this, and he really likes himself. Ruining my life, I find I bow the knee, I get crucified. My, what did he say in Romans 6? Our old self was crucified with him. Some element of you died. Your faith moved from faith in you to faith in him, which means the passions, which were the energy of that life, are no longer in command. If I find a new Lord, I can't just say, Evan's interests and Evan's passions, they go along really well together. Anything the passions want, another ice cream cone? Well, sure, I'll have another one. That's how I got big. Because people kept offering me french fries. And I wanted them, and I was, I was Evan. Okay? I mean, it's, it's kind of almost an ontological uh, necessity. Evan was there. Evan wants french fries. French fries were available. Our passions are our passions. We have means of dealing with them. We first have to change our mind. Remember in Romans 12? You are transformed by the renewal of your mind that you may prove what is the will of God. We call on the name of the Lord. Romans 10, we will be saved. We bow the knee. This does not describe a Christian. I am not a captive, verse 23, of the law of sin. Then he describes it, the wonderful gospel moment, 24. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? There's the gospel. What do you say? Somebody comes to you, what must I do to be saved? I'm a wretch. 
Is it John, John Newton and Amazing Grace? You save a wretch like me. That's what you were. That's not what you are. Don't transfer your sense of what wickedness you were as a non-believer into your life as a believer. You recognize that you're dead to sin. You consider yourself dead to sin. You have been made alive to the Lord Jesus Christ. You've been married to another. Now, every sin. Oh, I'm not saying you don't sin anymore. I'm saying that when you do, there's no excuse whatsoever. And it is only because of the way you think. Merely decision. Not the ignorance of a bad first marriage to law and sin, but the failure to grow in grace in Christ and accept what you have in Christ. There's no longer this irresistible, I, can't, I know what's good, but I can't do it. You can do it. You were told to do it. You were given the power to do it. Everything for life and godliness has been given to you. Who will deliver me from this body of death? You want to describe your Christian life that way? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I of myself, this is reiterating what he has just illustrated, just you, Serve the law of God with your mind, with my mind, and with my flesh I serve the law of sin. That had better not be your life verse. Oh yeah, and we love, we love that when we run into that in the church, you know. All those people, they just really, all their thoughts and conversation, they study theology all the time, and well yeah, they're rat bastards, but you know, sure they hate their wives. Sure, they do this, that, and the other. Sure, they're angry people. You don't want to... I've quoted this thing about John Knox before when somebody, some historian said, he was not very Christ-like, but he was good for Scotland. Well, you don't want that. We don't want that church here. We don't want people who are going around, you know, it's all about brokenness. You know, and this verse is about brokenness. I hate brokenness. God doesn't like brokenness either. He fixed you. You don't serve the law of sin. Knock it off. Now why? How can I say this? Well, I included verse 1 and 2 of chapter 8. I know it's cheating. I'm not allowed to do that. There is therefore now if you want a present tense, he lands on you there. There is, therefore, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death, which he just said, I of myself was in this law of sin and death. That of myself, that's where I was. The law of the spirit and life. That's this whole illustration. You were in a bad marriage. Don't continue to pretend as a Christian you're still in a bad marriage. You and sin just, you know, have, you're, kind of, you're always cheating on Jesus. Or more like you're cheating on your sinful life by running off to church and pretending to be a Christian every once in a while. Consider the death that is in the gospel. It has set you free, and it has set you free for a purpose. 
that you may bear fruit for God. So we don't have Christians running around trying to explain why they sin all the time. We should be amazed by how holy we have become. How good. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful that you have set us free from the law of sin and death. Lord, we're grateful that the law of the Spirit of life in your Son has created a new life for us, different, no longer wretched, no longer in a body of death, no longer slaves to our passions, egged on by the law, we have been set free from that whole construct, and we're grateful. Help us each to learn what that is. Help us each when we preach the gospel to preach this counting of the cost, this death that we find in your Son and it wonderfully sets us free from that train wreck that we used to live. God bless us each in your Son's name. Amen.